0: Today we begin Acts chapter 14. 14 is halfway through this book. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Can you believe that we're only halfway through? I mean, I, I told you when we started this, we're, we're not gonna pace or you know, no pacing and just take it one chunk at a time. And that's kind of what we've been doing. We are halfway through. And I think we're gonna take some more breaks and do some different series this fall. Um, but I'm excited to just keep marching through Acts. There's just so much good stuff in this book. I've been having a great time. Um, I, it's just really transformed the way I open the Bible now. I'm just like, this is fun. I'm excited about what I'm gonna discover in this next chapter and really dig deep and find details and do research. So I'm glad we can do this together. We have been tracking Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey together. Here's a map of where they have gone so far, where they will go. They recently preached in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, all the way at the top up there. And many people gave their lives to Jesus. Unfortunately, (laughs) there were religious elites in Pisidian Antioch that became jealous, and they expelled Paul and Barnabas from the city. So Paul and Barnabas traveled to Iconium, which is east of Pisidian Antioch, And today Iconium is actually a major city in Turkey called Konya, Konya with a K. So let's just dive right in. Acts chapter 14, starting with verse one. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So what's the first thing they do when they get to this new city? They go straight to the Jewish synagogue. Even though at the last city, Pisidian Antioch, they were expelled by hard-hearted Jews. So this tells us they did not give up on the Jews. I mean, I would have been angry. I would have been like, man, those jerks over in Pisidian Antioch, we're just going straight to the Gentiles. Forget the synagogue. But no, they loved, they still loved their Jewish brothers. They went straight to the synagogue to teach the gospel. And I'm so glad they did because right here in verse one, it says a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. They didn't let that rejection from before discourage them. And that is hard to do. Like how many times do we face a painful rejection like that and then we're just done? And we just write people off and but they focused on their mission, which was preaching the gospel to whoever would listen. They would start in the synagogues, they would move out to the Gentiles, and some people did listen. And of course, There was some opposition, so we're seeing this pattern, right? They go to a city, some people believe, some people don't, and then some people make it their mission to just make things as difficult as possible for Paul and Barnabas, you know, but the fight was on. They didn't leave. It says Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. So in the face of opposition, they continued fighting for the gospel, which is awesome. You know, and this, this third verse here at the bottom is really important. It says, the message of grace was confirmed by signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. We don't really say that phrase a whole lot in the church today. Um, there's some classic Pentecostal churches that might use that phrase more often, but it, it just means miracles. It means the Holy Spirit showed up and did some cool stuff. Pro- miracles, prophecy, healing, tongues, people being delivered from demons, that kind of stuff, signs and wonders. And this is the kind of stuff that we tend to see more often during times of revival. You know, and this is why we pray for revival to come. I mean, at least this is why we should pray for revival to come, not just because we wanna see the Holy Spirit doing cool stuff and, and revel in that, but because it confirms the message of God's grace. That's what we read here. Signs and wonders confirmed the message of God's grace. And that is what revival is for, right? It's not just a fun party for Christians. The purpose is to draw unbelievers to Jesus. That is the whole point of it all. The purpose is to confirm the message of God's grace, just just like we see here in Acts chapter 14. So it's, it's important as revivals come and go, there's always people watching and kind of observing and writing about these things. And if a revival becomes focused on just reveling in Holy Spirit fireworks, then we've lost our way. That's not the point. If a revival remains focused on receiving empowerment and then being sent out to share the gospel, that is what revival is for. That means we're on track. We are being filled up and then we're going out to share the blessing with others. That's the whole point. So, important lesson for us to remember purpose of revival the purpose of signs and wonders and the powerful working of the holy spirit it is to confirm the message of god's grace and to draw other people to jesus and so that's why many spirit filled churches continue to pray for revival because it means thousands upon thousands of souls coming to know jesus but what do we do then when we're not in a time of revival <laughs> And some charismatic Pentecostal churches can struggle with this. You know, what do we do when we are in the valley, when we're in between one revival and the next? Revivals come and gone. We're praying for the next one, but what do we do? Do we just sit on our hands and wait? No. So whether we're experiencing a powerful revival or not, our mission is the same, to go and make disciples of all nations. Pause. Is anybody cold? Yes. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm cold, and when I'm cold, I'm like, okay, we're past the point of no return here. I bet everybody in here is cold. Hey, um, Paul, would you mind going to that thermostat and just turn it up to like 72? Thank you. Sorry, guys. We have more control over the thermostat now, which is great. Great. But I am turning this place into a fridge so that you can bring your steaks here for lunch and keep them cold and then just take them. No, just kidding. <laughs> it can be frustrating sometimes when we are in the valley, you know, the in-between. It can feel like a struggle, especially now because there is just so much resistance especially in our culture here. There's so much resistance. So many people's minds have been poisoned against Christianity by our culture. And we might be tempted to ask like, well, what's the point? Why do we even try? Why waste our breath if we're just gonna be rejected over and over and over again? But if we look at this story here, I mean, Paul and Barnabas could have certainly felt that way after leaving Pisidian Antioch where they were extremely rejected, but they didn't quit. They were obedient to what God called them to do. And even before any mention of signs and wonders, right? Before the signs and wonders were mentioned, it says because of their preaching, some did come to believe. So even before the fireworks, the Holy Spirit still works. In between revival, the Holy Spirit still works works and we still have a job to do unfortunately in this chapter we're going to read the resistance did come but Paul and Barnabas kept their noses to the grindstone Have you guys ever heard that phrase before keep your nose to the grindstone it just means work just stick with it keep at it work hard be persistent and they did and the breakthrough did come which is good you know uh Phil Strout is a a pastor. He was the Vineyard USA national director for over a decade. Really great guy. Super humble, loves the Lord, amazing servant's heart. He did a really good job leading the Vineyard churches through a difficult season. And something he said at a conference really stuck with me. He said, sometimes the kingdom of God comes like a mighty rushing wind. The Holy Spirit comes like an avalanche, a crashing wave, It comes quickly, intensely. There's this overwhelming power of God that is poured out and there's just amazing revival that happens. There are seasons like that. And he also said, sometimes there are seasons where it is a slow kingdom coming. And that's a phrase that I was like, hmm, that doesn't sound exciting to me. Slow kingdom coming. Sometimes there are seasons where it is a slow kingdom coming, where we just have to keep our noses to the grindstone where the faithful of God are persistent and they just patiently serve and work and seek the Lord in the face of persecution and resistance. Sometimes we're called to cultivate hard, rocky soil. And we pray for rain and we pray for God to come and and bless us with Holy Spirit power. And there are times where God calls us to a season of plain, hard work. Paul said in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and the, uh, the context that we sometimes prefer to leave out of that <laughs> verse is this. He says, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, whether obedience to the mission of God is easy and effortless by the grace of God, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, or even if Serving God is like a slow kingdom coming and it just takes years of keeping our nose to the grindstone. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Amen. Amen. Let's read on. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So they fought and they fought and fought up until the point where there were people trying to kill them and then they felt peace to move on and go to Lystra and Derbe. Let me see if I can go back to our map. Not just south of Iconium, Lystra and Derbe where they continued to preach The gospel. You know, it's interesting. In verse 4, this is the first time that Paul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles in this book of Acts. Kind of cool. Another interesting note here Luke writes that these cities of Lystra and Derbe were in the province of Lycaonia. And you might be thinking, like, okay, cool. So what? Um, This has actually confused a lot of historians and scholars because for centuries, historians have understood these two cities to be in separate Roman provinces, not in the same province of Lyconia. So some secular historians have have been skeptical and they have questioned Luke's accuracy as a writer of, of a gospel in this book of Acts. But there were some diligent scholars that did some digging and they found evidence that the borders of this Lyconian region changed. They had been redrawn in the 1st century around AD 72. Isn't that cool? So from a period from 32 to 72 AD about 40 years, Lystra and Derby were both Lyconian cities. All that to say, Luke was correct. Luke is historically accurate, and there were all the smart, wise guys saying, "Oh, the Bible's not reliable. Luke is wrong about this." And it took somebody actually doing some digging, and they found evidence like, no, these were both Lyconian cities at one point until they redrew the borders, and then Derby, or, or whatever, was in a different province. So this is kind of nerdy stuff, but I just think it's really cool uh, to see this is such a good argument in defense of the reliability of Scripture. Let's keep reading. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Cool. I mean, this is an amazing miracle. But something else jumped, jumped out at me as I read verse 9. It says, Paul looked at this lame man and saw that he had faith to be healed. That really struck me. Paul looked at this man and saw something in him. And we don't, you know, who knows what faith looks like. Maybe he had a weird look on his face or, or Paul could see into his eyes something. You know, I think maybe it was probably just a gift of discernment from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed to Paul, look at that guy. Something's going on there. And what this means is that sometimes it's the faith of the person in need of healing that is mentioned and noted in Scripture. I mean, throughout the Bible, we read all different kinds of stories of healing, and they're not all the same. They're very different. There's so much variety in the way that people are miraculously healed in the Bible Sometimes it's the faith of other people that is commended in a passage of Scripture. Like if you remember in one of the Gospels, the four friends bringing their paralyzed friend on a mat and they carry him up to the roof and they tear open a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down in front of Jesus so that their friend can be healed. And in that passage, Jesus specifically commends the faith of the four friends. And sometimes miraculous healings are limited because of, of a lack of faith. I looked it up, the Gospel of Mark, chapter six. Jesus went to his hometown, and there was such a lack of faith there. There was so much dishonor for the Son of God. It says that Jesus could hardly do any miracles other than to lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. Wow, that's, that's kind of concerning. So the Bible confirms for us that there are times where a lack of faith will limit the work of Jesus, the Son of God. So we can't really make a formula when it comes to healing. There's just there's, there's too much variety. <laughs> there's not enough consistency, and, and it's risky anyway to try to develop doctrines based on patterns. But one common thread that is mentioned in just about every story of healing in the Bible is, is faith, either it's the person's faith, someone else's faith, it's the apostles' faith. You know, I would really love to see more healing happen in this place, amen. I would love to see more miracles and not just for like some kind of weird validation as a pastor, (laughs) you know, that's tempting. Like, yeah, we had someone fall over and start writhing on the floor. We're such a spiritual church. and it's not about like this just feeling spiritual or some kind of churchy pride thing. It's I want to see healing because there are people here that I love and care about that need healing. Because they are hurting, because they are sick. That's why I want to see healing and miracles in this place. Amen. I also want to see healing and miracles because that's just in the Bible and that's what we're told to do and pray for. You know, I want to see signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit working in us, through us, not just for our sake, but so that we can be a blessing to this community. I mean, that's the whole point, right? Not just for us, but we are to be filled up so that we can be sent out, so we can go bless our neighbors and bless that person at work and bless that random person we come across in need at Walmart or wherever. We often use this phrase, let's be the hands and feet of Jesus. You know what the hands of Jesus did a lot? They healed people. He did miracles and we don't really think about that a lot. Like, yeah, go be the hands and feet of Jesus. But that's part of it, being miracle working. So God, I just pray we can have the miracle working power to be your hands and feet of Jesus so we can be a blessing to this community. You know, I I don't know why we say the feet of Jesus. I guess we walk places and we go places. Did Jesus ever heal someone with their feet? I don't remember reading that in the Bible. <laughs> um, I can visualize it, you know, like, yeah, be healed. I mean, that, that would be a little alarming if somebody just, bah, be healed in the name of Jesus. The hands and feet of Jesus, be gone, foul demon. I'm kidding though, you know, let's not karate kick demons out of people. But yeah, we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the fullest extent of what that means, which means being fully empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the will of God. So, let's just be praying this week. Like, God, would you give us faith? Would you fill our hearts with faith so that we can have an impact on this community, on this church body? Give us faith for healing, for miracles, for signs and wonders. Amen. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, which means Paul and Barnabas did not know what was going on at first, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus. And Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls, bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Ah, oh boy. And it's sad, my first thought when I read this was like, Barnabas gets to be Zeus? Uh, and Paul is just Hermes? Like, did they fight about this later? <laughs> why, do you, why do you get to be Zeus? Why am I Hermes? I wanna be Zeus. No, they, they were actually extremely upset about this. They want to give all glory to God they don't want any glory for themselves. They definitely don't want to be misassociated with false gods from the Greek pantheon, which just some people just made up one day. Isn't that crazy? Somebody just made up Zeus one day. It's just fiction, it's just a story. It's amazing to me that for centuries people actually believed that Zeus was real. And there's actually this common legend about this city of Lystra that we're reading about here. In this legend. Zeus and Hermes once visited Lystra, but no one showed them any hospitality except for one elderly couple. And in their anger, Zeus and Hermes wiped out the entire city except for this one elderly couple. So this might explain why they were so quick to identify Paul and Barnabas with Zeus and, and Hermes and they wanted to honor them with sacrifices. Please don't destroy our city. Welcome, here, here we'll kill this animal for you and it took a while because they were speaking in Lyconian but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting friends why are you doing this we too are only human like you you guys torn your clothes recently when you were upset with anything we don't really do that anymore, do we? Oh, I forgot to put stuff in the dishwasher. Ah! I, I don't know. That, that would be terrifying if somebody just tore their clothes in front of you. Like, hey, sorry, I'm going to be like five minutes late. Ah! I, I'm sorry. You know, it was this ancient tradition among the Jews where it was associated with grief, mourning, loss, blasphemy. It was this very powerful and usually public way to express great sorrow, humility, or anger. We first read about tearing clothes in the book of Genesis. It was uh, when Joseph was thrown into that pit by his brothers, Reuben didn't want Joseph to die, so he actually went back to check on him in the pit, but it turns out Joseph's other brothers sold him as a slave. Reuben didn't know this. Reuben thought he was just gone and dead, so he tore his clothes. That's the first time we read about that. And then he told his father, Jacob, and then Jacob tore his clothes and he was mourning the loss of his son. We also read about King David tearing his clothes when Saul and Jonathan died, mourning their loss. And in the book of Job, which is probably the oldest book in the whole Bible, Job tore his clothes when he lost everything. Elisha tore his clothes when Elijah ascended into heaven. You know, we don't really tear our clothes anymore when we're upset, unless you're Hulk Hogan or some kind of WWE. And it's not about being upset, it's just about showing off your muscles. Rah, I will beat you in the ring. It's Hulk Hogan must have gone through like 300 shirts a year. He was constantly tearing his shirt. You know, I used to uh, design a lot of graphics for clients. Right now I just do graphics for the school, but for, for years I was a freelancer on the side in between ministry jobs, I would take on these graphic design gigs or website gigs and, and uh, there have been times where I've been pretty frustrated with, with feedback and, and I was pretty close to wanting to tear my clothes maybe. You know, I made this graphic I was really proud of once and, and the client responded by saying, I feel like you're not even really trying. <laughs> Ah! I, I mean, what, ouch, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what to tell you. You know, I, it, maybe some of you are used to getting confusing feedback from people, especially if you do any kind of creative work. I once got feedback that just said, this design isn't dynamic enough. Can you explain what that means exactly? You know, it's, it's a tricky thing. A lot of people don't know how to describe what they don't like about your graphic you know, once I designed this really great graphic, I was proud of it. And then somebody gave me feedback that said, it looks like something that would hang in the hallways of a hospital. Ah, I don't even know what that means. You know, it's all just part of the job, I guess. I was like, wow, thank you, I guess. Anyway, maybe next time I, I get really upset. There's no cereal? Ah, just tear my shirt off and okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, verse 15. "'We are bringing you good news, "'telling you to turn from these worthless things "'to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth "'and the sea and everything in them. "'In the past, he let all nations go their own way. "'Yet he has not left himself without testimony.'" He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So Paul was really clear with them. I mean, he said, turn from these useless things. Turn from these false gods. We are just humans. Turn instead to the one living God who made everything. You know, all these things that Paul mentions, like notice he wasn't appealing to Hebrew scripture for these people who knew nothing about the Jewish faith. He was pointing to things that would normally be attributed to Zeus. He said, the rain from heaven, the fruitful harvest that you have, hearts that are filled with joy, all these things were attributed to Zeus. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. These things come from the one true God, Yahweh. Let's keep reading. Verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. What? They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Wow, so some of Paul and Barnabas' enemies came all the way from Pisidian, Antioch. You know, Iconium was a 20-mile journey. That's at least a full day of travel, maybe more. And then Pisidian Antioch is over 90 miles away, if you follow the Roman highway that went through these cities. That's at least a three-day journey. So these enemies were out for blood. They were following Paul and Barnabas. And Paul has been the primary voice here, so they target Paul, they stone him, they drag him outside of the city, they leave him for dead. And Bible scholars aren't sure whether Paul actually died and God just brought him back, or if he just, his, God just preserved his life. It doesn't matter. Either way, it's a miracle that Paul just got up and it says he went right back into the city. That's bunkers. You know, it's interesting because Paul has come Full circle here. He stood and, and uh, watched approvingly as Stephen was stoned. But now he himself is, has been stoned for preaching the gospel for the cause of Christ. You know, the last verse, it, it just blows my mind. The fact that Paul just got up and went straight back into the city. I mean, he didn't run, he didn't seek shelter. He just gets up and he says, I've still got work to do. I'm gonna leave on my own terms. They spend the night and then they leave the next day. Paul was just fearless. I mean, he had this full confidence in the protection of God. Like if God didn't allow him to die from being stoned, then God would not allow them to kill him hours later if he goes back into the city. So they left for Derby the next day Paul and Barnabas left on their own terms. When they were ready, they did not fall to the fear of their enemies. And we also learn later that Timothy, the guy that Paul wrote those letters to, first and second Timothy, Timothy was from Lystra. Timothy would later become a very important disciple of Paul's. You know, it's possible that that Timothy witnessed everything that happened to Paul. Maybe Timothy was there when they were stoning him, when they were dragging him outside of the city. Maybe Timothy saw Paul walk right back into the city alive. Timothy may have witnessed something that changed him and, and wanted him to follow, that caused him to want to follow Jesus. Maybe Timothy saw the way that Paul healed this lame man and then turned away the people that were trying to worship him. Well, we're gonna stop there today, but let me just pray for us. God, we again, we just ask, would you just do signs and wonders in this place? Would you fill our hearts with faith for healing? Would you just give us gifts of your Holy Spirit, not just for our own sake, Lord, but so that we can be filled up and be sent out and be a blessing to the people in our lives, the people around us? God, I pray you'd give us the courage and the fearlessness of Paul and Barnabas. Bless our families, Lord. Fill us with your love, with your peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.